Hello, and hello. <laughs> hello. Welcome to Voice Club, and welcome to the return of the psychedelic philosopher, Peter Shusted H. And we spoke to each other about four months ago now, in June. It's taken me a long time to get this going. Life has definitely got in the way, but it is here now, and I can happily report that the audio at the beginning and the audio at the end and the video in the middle fucked up. So that's what it is. Now I have in fact removed the bad audio from this podcast version and I've left it in on YouTube. So if you do want to listen to the end of the conversation, then check it out on YouTube where the conversation itself was also filmed. I do very much hope you enjoy this conversation. And before we get into it, I do ask that you consider supporting this channel if you enjoy conversations like this and if you resonate with the mission more broadly, which is um, to build an online and live forum for creative, vulnerable conversations for the betterment of self and society, for the development of individual sovereignty and collective responsibility, um, to really try and get somewhere in an honest discourse that is not purely intellectual. I think there's something that individuals need to bring to bear in conversation that really lays something else down on the line. It's a sort of epistemic humility. It's a sort of vulnerability. It's a real embodied sense of purpose and a real attention paid to the fluctuating meaning in your experience as you relate to someone else. And as you find yourself in a particular moment of your strange webbed contextualized absurd life. <laughs> and so I ask you consider supporting me, well, the project, but I ask that you consider supporting me to actualize this project. It's very much needed now. And um, even a small amount will go a long way. That's what people say. Obviously, a small amount will go a small way. I mean, clearly. <laughs> um, so large amounts would be preferable. A small amount goes a long way to paying for something not very expensive. <laughs> so, thank you for listening to this and um, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Oh, and I should say one final thing before we get into it. Final thing, I promise. And that's just that Peter has been on the podcast before. In fact, there are three episodes released with Peter in it. They were all taken from one conversation, just split up into three. And that was, I think, at the end of November in 2017 now. I can't believe that's more than a year past. But it was released earlier this year. And... That was a podcast that was received really well, actually, and is one that doesn't have any issues with audio. Um, although I did fuck the video up for that too, so there's no video for that one. Um, but the audio is good, and it's, um, I think, a much more, in a way, it's a much more personal introduction to Peter as a thinker, at least for the first 10, 15 minutes, and then we get into it and engage in some sort of mutual exploration of ideas, which was quite fun. So do check that one out if you like this, and otherwise, enjoy yourself as much as you can. So, um, what have I been doing recently? I've been tracing the uh, history of physicalism, 
um, from the ancient Greeks. Um, you know, Democritus, Lucifer, Epicurus, and then Lucretius, and so on. Um, to you know, modern day, really realizing with the intent of showing it the, the notion of matter to be an abstraction, also showing that it's basically a very vague concept, as Herbert Fiegel uh, said. Herbert Fiegel's got a great essay on it, mental and the physical. Um, also, that it's sort of paradoxical when you look at something like Hempel's dilemma, which I won't go into, but you know, you can Google that. <laughs> anyway, so in the end, the idea of matter is very vague, mm-hmm. ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, and my ultimate reason for that is to um, make panpsychism a more tenable worldview. Yes. So instead of materialism, or f- as it became physicalism on one side, dualism, that mind and body are both fundamental, and idealism, um, which is a view that uh, the mind is fundamental and matter is sort of a projection of that, the opposite of materialism, really. Um, you could almost say there's a fourth strand, which is panpsychism, which is that um, mind exists in all matter. This is my main study at the moment. So attacking materialism is uh, ipso facto um, advocating panpsychism. So that's what I've been looking at. A lot of history, historical analysis really is not that philosophical, but um, I've been doing that. And at the same time, because I'm giving a talk on the great Penzance chemical philosopher, Humphrey Davy, I've also been looking at Spinoza, another panpsychist. Now, the reason is Humphrey Davy who was the first scientific psychonaut, that's how I titled my um, talk. Um, he, he tried nitrous oxide, um, received fantastic visions from it and, and feelings, experiences. Um, in his notebook, he even writes a poem about nitrous oxide, immediately after which he writes a poem called The Spinozist. Mm. And I thought it's quite fascinating, fascinating how these first psychonauts, I mean, that's a later term from 1970, of course, but, you know, retrospectively, these psychonauts, um, including his friends Coleridge, Southey, Wordsworth, um, they were having these experiences. I mean, Coleridge was an opium addict, probably more so than Thomas de Quincey even, having these amazing experiences. And at the same time, German idealism was becoming, you know, very big uh, with Kant and Fichte and Schelling and then Schopenhauer, Hegel. so I thought, yeah, you know, it would be very interesting to sort of interpret these psychedelic experiences under that more, um, under that idealism from the Romantic age, um, because it's not popular today, really. But what I, because of my general studies on panpsychism, I uh, sort of looked at a specific variety of idealism, um, uh, which is Spinozism, um, the philosophy of um, Benedict de Spinoza, and um, just found it fascinating. You know, it's. Um, I mean, he is. He was severely punished for his philosophy, but uh, that's because it was so original, and that's why his legacy remains today. I mean, even today, I think he can teach us a lot, mm. even with regard to the studies here. You know. Well, that's interesting. To Just topically, then, what do you think Spinoza can bring? We're at the Beyond Psychedelics conference in Prague. Mm. What do you think he could bring to the general intellectual milieu here? Well, a number of things, but I should say, first of all, this. So he's got his system, which would be hard to explain briefly, but um, 
It's essentially that um, God is nature. So it's a sort of pantheism or yes. panentheism that goes yes. nature in a bit more. Um, and he calls it God or nature or even substance. You could call it reality or the universe as well. Anyway, that's everything. So it's a monism, not a dualism. And consciousness, or what he calls thought, is one attribute of that. It's like one expression of the totality. Mm-hmm. It's not part of it. It's the whole of it. It's a version of it. Put it that way. Right. Um, but another version of it, another attribute, is matter, or what he calls extension. Okay. Uh, space, spatiality. And um, these are basically different versions of the same thing, which is God nature. Right. And that's a hype. If you treat that as a hypothesis, interestingly, there are also an infinite number of other attributes, expressions of reality, of which we do not have access. Although, in an earlier book, Spinoza sort of, you know, put forward the idea that perhaps in Revelation, one can have these other, um, sort of enter these other states of existence. Something I'll be talking about in my talk. Um, But anyway, um, what can it teach us? Well, if you took that as a working hypothesis, you would expect a total brain-to-mind correlation, because they are the same thing. Mm. That's also why it doesn't believe in free will or mental causation, because um, it would be, it's not, it's not one thing that causes another, it's just two expressions of the same thing. It would be like saying um, uh, Elizabeth II caused the Queen of the United Kingdom to move, you know, which is uh, obviously misuse of words, and that would be the misuse of words uh, for free will, for Spinoza, interestingly, as well. Mm. But but ultimately, this point is this, that, okay, so under that very metaphysical hypothesis, I mean, he thinks it's a theorem, you know, I mean, his method is geometrical. But let's just put, treat it as a hypothesis. You would expect a total um, perfect correlation between the brain and the mind. So that means that when we trace um, these correlations, mm-hmm. as is increasingly happening, that in no way indicates, therefore, you know, we can ex- now explain the mind by the brain. Right. Not at all, because this metaphysical view would expect exa- exactly the same thing. Right. And moreover, it's actually sort of helpful in terms of um, the whole problem of free will. Mm. Essentially, it denies free will, you know, the mental causing the physical to move. Which, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so... So I know Spinoza has been, as you've just been describing, a, a, a more recent interest of yours. Um, but I also know that uh, part of your lifelong project is to fuse some of the thinking of Nietzsche and some of the thinking of Whitehead together. Yeah. So I'm quite interested in how, if at all, reading Spinoza has influenced any of what you would consider your theories to be. You know, um, Nietzsche was originally a very big fan of Spinoza. You know, mm-hmm. he said in letter, I've, I found, you know, my mentor, my, my calling. Mm. Later on, he criticized him a bit for his method, mm-hmm. which he thought was sort of pretentious. But, but um, like Nietzsche, Spinoza didn't believe in free will. Um, he wasn't a mechanical determinist. I mean, there's, there's, it's not either or. Um, also, Spinoza was a moral relativist like Nietzsche. Didn't believe in absolute good and evil. I mean, he said there were greater states of existence which he called good. But he always made it clear that, you know, that, that the, there's no transcendental, there's nothing outside of nature mm-hmm. that could uh, determine something as good. Mm-hmm. So in that way, he's very similar to Nietzsche. And so I think um, that will definitely, that, that can be and should be really definitely um, incorporated into this fusion of Nietzsche and Whitehead. So the fusion of Nietzsche and Whitehead that I have in mind is really um, the following. Um, so, well, I could, 
you can get technical quickly. <laughs> so I try to keep it as simple as possible. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> I, th I suppose the main, the main point of contact between Whitehead and Nietzsche is um, what Nietzsche calls the will to power, yes. which is a fundamental drive um, of which, again, matter and thought are properties, actually properties, yeah, I should say. Um, but underlying all force, there is will to power. He, he writes in his later books and his notebooks. And as I said before, I think, I think it's an unfinished system. You know, he, he was sort of um, getting closer and closer to the truth. Now, in Whitehead, you have a, com you have a completed system. Right. By the way, you know, Nietzsche said he was against systems at one point, but, you know, he changed his mind. He changed his mind on every, many things, so uh, that's not a criticism. But um, Whitehead had this great system, um, philosophy of organism, uh, also known as process philosophy, and um, he... Um, his fundamental units were called actual entities or actual occasions, borrowed slightly from William James, you know, drops of experience. And these drops of experience, uh, which are smaller and uh, of less duration than, uh, you know, electrons even, um, they, were a pro they were units, they were atomic units in one sense, but they were processes, right, uh, known as concrescences. And... Um, <clears throat> It's quite a detailed sort of um, analysis of, of what they are exactly, but fundamentally in relation to Nietzsche, there's a subjective aim in all of them, you know? They all st strived to reach uh, what he called satisfaction, which we shouldn't anthropomorphize, but basically there was a teleology there. People already are right yeah. now. <laughs> and um, a teleology, yeah, name, mm. goal, orientation. They're, they're basically... Um, in inherent goals within everything. And for Whitehead, that was ultimately aesthetic perfection. Mm, that was the ultimate perfection. value of everything. And now Nietzsche, I mean, that, that subjective aim then, that drive to value, let's call it value because it makes it a bit more general, a bit more compatible. Um, that drive is very similar to the will to power. But for Nietzsche then, it's a, it's a drive to power, in mm -hmm. other words, doesn't mean greed, you know, it means advancement, development, growth, you know. Um, in organisms such as ourselves, it means having more um, awareness of our surroundings so that we could potentially uh, manipulate it or use it to our purpose or our group's purpose. You know? um, so there's a connection there to be made between Whitehead's uh, actual entities, subjective aims, and Nietzsche's will to power. I think Nietzsche sort of lacks the more aesthetic elements that make Whitehead's um, philosophy a bit more sort of, um, what should I say, you know, flavorsome somehow. Um, but I think, and, and Whitehead does talk about power as well, um, but I think he doesn't emphasize it enough. So I think a nice, you know, there could be a, a nice fusion between those two philosophies. Philosophies to be made, yeah. Interesting. All right, I'm going to reset the main camera and give it another 30 minutes. We'll still record. Okay. Are you now giving a TED talk? Yes, I heard about I'll tell you that. Peter just told me about his TED talk. He's very proud. <laughs> just, I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Uh, you know, I got told off already. Wow. So don't publish that, please. They're very, they're very strict. Okay, so a fusion of, of Whitehead and Nietzsche. Yes. And we've just covered 
a little bit of Spinoza and just obviously a, a little bit of Nietzsche and Whitehead, <laughs> just little bits of things. But um, there is uh, an aspect of Whitehead's philosophy that endorses um, the idea of a sort of perpetual creation, perpetual creativity. And yes. that I suppose I can see how that relates to this striving of the will to power to what complexity, but it also, but also to an aesthetic element of it. Um, I guess... I mean, I should just yep. insert a footnote there. I mean, you know, for Nietzsche, unlike Schopenhauer, um, beauty was a, cons was a sort of intuition of power, you know, and especially mm -hmm. in terms of, um, you know, um, mates that, you know, you find the healthiest one. And it was a sort of, it was um, related to lust for Nietzsche, you see, in complete contradistinction to Schopenhauer, who said the way to quell the will, for Schopenhauer, the will was just a, a bane, was to look at pure art, Mm. And that could take you away from any will, lust, desire you might have. Mm. For Nietzsche, you know, he, he, went, he, he went completely the other way. So, yeah, there is actually that link there um, between Nietzsche, power, and at least human beauty. Mm. So I guess, I guess one thing that's interesting is uh, how, how radical is the perpetual creativity? I mean... Because if so, I guess part part of the part of the issue I'm having conceptualizing some of this stuff is in relationship to free will as well. Mm. Um, because I can get on board with more or less if there's a if there's a sort of a, a, a fixed sort of system in place, I can sort of understand how Spinoza sees if, if nature is if nature is God and that we are all expressions of that, then well. I suppose I'm not sure how to build out the argument appropriately to go from there to say we have no free will. So perhaps I'll ask you to do that, but then also to comment on whether or not we need to make an, an, an addendum to that argument to then take away the sort of free will on the Whiteheadian side of things. Because I guess I've been, uh, part of my metaphysical framework has been to uh, uh, sort of a save a, a, some degree of free will, ultimately a compatibilist kind, I suppose, but to save some degree of free will, um, at least in part through the notion of a radical creativity that we ourselves are involved in and, and with, and that part of our intention and an orientation involves, well, something like setting a goal in a very unconscious way and sort of discerning mm. our way towards it and so it's very it's limited but at the same time at the same time it does seem to me we can we can uh, we we can miss the mark and that we're involved in that and maybe that's enough for me to say we have an element of freedom so i don't know how much sense you well, can make i mean that. you know this is one of the big questions of life generally the question right. of free will and and i can't claim to know to know the answer but but i'll, I'll put put a few views forward okay firstly spinoza unlike whitehead was pure determinist. Again, not a mechanical determinist because um, you know matter was just one of the infinite number of attributes. But nonetheless, he used a sort of ontological argument similar for, similar to Descartes, which is that you know um, the idea of God is of everything of absolute perfection. Mm -hmm. um, so he he couldn't have done anything other than the way it has and will be done because mm -hmm. that would take away from his perfection, which is for Spinoza, contradiction, like mm -hmm. a logical contradiction, like a square having three sides. Um, now, 
you know, the ontological argument, these kind of arguments are, you know, very debatable. Kant famously, you know, debate, you know is known to have um, um, refuted the ontological argument for God. But anyway, this is Spinoza's view. And um, so he's a total determinist. And that means that um, in, in uh, nature, um, everything that happens, happens for a cause. Um, and we are mostly ignorant of those causes. But mm-hmm. also, in our minds, and the other attribute, you know, thought, as he calls it, which is really consciousness, um, or sentience even, our thought is also fully determined, but we are not cognizant of the causes of right. our thoughts. So even though we might think, um, I've decided to turn left now, you think that's a free decision, mm-hmm. you're actually ignorant of the prior causes which led to that position. Mm-hmm. But again, I stress this, that doesn't therefore mean materialism at all. You know, Spinoza's system is totally metaphysical. So you can have a purely determinist um, point of view which is t- completely uh, metaphysical as well you know mm-hmm. it's the interesting thing about him also yeah. it means there can't be free will again then because as i say the mind is is another expression of matter so therefore an expression can't cause another expression it'd be a category mistake you know so therefore there cannot be free will for that reason as well i mean so there's t- two kinds of Generally speaking, there's two kinds of mental causation. There's mental to the physical, like yes. I want a beer, I'll move my arm. Yes. And then there's mental to mental, uh, which is um, I thought of a leaf and then I thought of a tree, you know, something like right. that. Um, but, but for Spinoza, then the mental mental one can't happen because it's fully determinate because God is perfect. And the mental physical one can't happen because it's, um, it's category, mis- what we'd call today a category mistake. mistake. You know, you're, you're saying like... Um, as I said, mentioned with a queen, or, or you could say, you know, the v, the morning star has caused the evening star to rise, which would be mistakes. The same thing, you know, Venus. Mm. So, so yeah, it's quite. I mean, it's 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 sort of. If you've never heard of Spinozism, it's quite hard to get your head around it. But Whitehead's very different in this sense because he believes that creativity above God, interestingly, mm. is the fundamental tenet of reality. Mm. And by creativity, he means the addition of novel elements into reality. So let's say we knew all the laws of nature. Let's say we knew the positions and directions of all particles and fields of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your purely deterministic point of view would be therefore you could perfectly calculate the next move. Mm-hmm. But with Whitehead, although that mostly happens in regular aeon eras, epochs, um, something new can and does always emerge. I mean, to extreme extents, which is hard to imagine. So, right. for example, he says, at the moment, we live in the electromagnetic era, you know, so electromagnetism, you know, light, electricity, magnetism, and so on, um, is like a central force in our universe, but that needn't be so. I mean, this is from Hume, really, the problem of induction, you know. Right. You know, we, just because we see re- regularities doesn't mean, therefore, they are co- have been constant and will be constant forever. That's actually impossible to prove. You can't prove the future. Mm. In fact, you can't even prove the past. I mean, even, you know, the Big Bang Theory is sort of, um, you know, um, under debate because the same background radiation and so on, redshift and whatnot, you can attribute to a fluctuating universe like Sir Roger Penrose, uh, you know, speculates. So the point is we shouldn't, I mean, it's, generally called the, you know, the fallacy of generalizing from the particular, you know, from a particular 
you know, even 200 years of measuring the speed of light, we shouldn't think that it's always going to be like that. Right. Um, and um, once you realize that, you realize, well, then, therefore, you know, um, there could be new things emerging into reality. Again, this is not Nietzsche, and I obviously believed in the eternal return, or sort of dallied, you know, dabbled in that, which is that, um, you know, everything has to return because there's only a limited number of, um, you know, laws and particles and whatever, yeah? Mm. So, so, so Whitehead goes beyond that. He even goes beyond the electromagnetic era. I mean, this is real speculative metaphysics. I mean, it's pure speculation, he admits, mm. but, you know, so even an era beyond um, three dimensions of space, that could just be a, like a, a sort of, um, you know, 500 billion your old habits that we're currently getting, you know, something like that. And that's interesting to compare to Spinoza as well, because if there are other attributes or expressions of the universe of which we are unaware, that could, you know, only one of them, then extension would be three-dimensionality. And so that's not necessary for both of them. Hmm, okay. Hard, hard, impossible to imagine, because obviously we've evolved to imagine anything outside of us and inside of us as extension, you know, three-dimensionality, but that's just a limitation of our minds, according to them. Mm. Okay, so can we recapture the thread of, of uh, well, mental causation here, I suppose, free will mm. on, on Whitehead's system, because um, to what extent is the sort of macro-consciousness we have involved in that perpetual creativity, and to what extent, if it is involved, can it oriented well yeah so in what it's every action um has a as 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 with every effect which is by the way an abstraction every event um has a multitude of in fact an infinity of causes because you can stretch it all the way back you know forever um so if free will is real that mm. is always only a partial factor in your mood, like even to move my hand, it wasn't just, if you believe in free will, it wasn't just like my idea. It was mm -hmm. also the fact that I have grown muscles mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the DNA that has mm -hmm. evolved over millions of years and so on. Yeah, you know? certainly the idea of radical free will is, is, uh, is never made much, it never made much sense, I mean, sense to me. But. Yeah, I mean, radical free will essentially is telekinesis. Right. And, and it's also based on a dualist system that, you know, something which is not matter can ultimately move matter, even if it's uh, something in a, inside a neuron or something like this, you know, but ultimately, this is what it really ultimately comes down to, you know, telekinesis. Right. However, the alternative is also no good because, I mean, Karl Popper's got this great, I mean, the alternative is epiphenomenalism then, yeah, which means this, that it was coined by Thomas Huxley, oldest Huxley's grandfather, um, and it means that all mental states are really just byproducts of neural operations and they actually, they have no effect upon uh, the body or future thoughts at all. They're like um, a steam whistle on, an, on a locomotive engine. Right? Mm -hmm. But most philosophers, in fact, most people, I should say most scientists who haven't, probably haven't th thought about it really, um, they don't want to accept that because, well, there's a very good scientific reason not to accept that, which is brought out nicely by Karl Popper in the 70s, the evolutionary argument. He says it, if you, epiphenomenalism, in other words, no free will, or no mental causation at least, is anti-Darwinian, anti-evolutionary, because um, if mentality had no power whatsoever 
it it wouldn't have evolved. It wouldn't have maintained itself. Mm-hmm. Now, some people will say, yeah, but there are certain things that have evolved without purpose. And that's true. Um, vestigial organs, of course, once did have a purpose. But there are other things that have evolved um, which don't play any role, just sort of accidental evolutionary things. But with consciousness, I don't think that's an, a fair analogy because it's not only happened to us humans. Presumably, so also, unless you're like Descartes, you don't believe that animals have consciousness. It's happened in a vast variety of organisms. If you're a panpsychist, of course, you, you believe it's sort of um, it's attributed to every single holon, every unit, subject of unit. So it would be excessively, I mean, it'd just be statistically impossible that it accidentally evolved in all those different species. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it plays an evolutionary role. And most people say that, oh yeah, you know, we, we sort of... Um, we can see, so we can spot prey coming and spot berries and flowers, and it helps us. Of course, most people believe that, you know. Um, but, but then that means that the mental has to have a cause on the physical. But then that doesn't fit into a materialist framework at all, because that would be a force unknown, un, you know, unobserved by the scientific method. But then again, that's not surprising because consciousness cannot directly be observed. We can only observe the objective correlates, right? But then you have to realize that. You have to realize that you're in a horrible paradox here. If you're, if you're sort of, if you call yourself scientific, you want to be evolutionary. If you're evolutionary, you have to realize that mentality has, has effects and aids our survival and advancement. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, if you're scientific, you want to believe that everything's fundamentally reducible to you know, the four fundamental um, interactions. Yep. Um, and if you leave it there, you could be a happy person. But if you, but if you compare the two, you realize that, well, no, that, that just does not work out, you know. Um, so Spinoza has a, an explanation for that. Okay. So it's similar to anomalous monism from Dave, Donald Davidson, except that it's a panpsychist version of that. It's more profound. Mm. But... Donald Davidson's really ultimately, as Jake Wong Kim says, a materialist. And um, like I said, matter, we don't know what matter is, and it's constantly evolving. It would be ridiculous to think we know, you know, there's a current understanding of matter is, is, is final, you know? Right. So you know, I mean, this is Hempel's dilemma very quickly, you know, you know that um, we know that um, looking at the history of science, we know that our concept of matter is constantly evolved, you know, from you know, the four elements to atoms and then um, spin, mass, velocity, so on and so forth. It's const- constantly adding a- uh, qualities to it. So it would be um, by something called pessimistic induction, it would be foolish to say, but now we know it all. You know, oh, it would be more likely by induction to think it, we're going to advance. You know, science does, it advances, right? So therefore, if you say you're a materialist, you can't say that you're, by matter you mean what we currently understand by matter. Mm-hmm. What's the alternative? Well, you say, well, I, I'm a materialist, so I believe in the sort of completed state of our understanding of matter. But of course, that's then belief in something of which you have no idea at all. You know, we don't know. I mean, the, the possibility is ultimately this, that you know, matter, we find that matter, and by find, I don't mean by empirical means, it can't be empirical, but we, but we somehow find that matter includes sentience, in which case, um, a materialist who takes that second horn and says, well, I believe in the future physics, the, the matter of future physics, suddenly loses his materialism if he says, um, if he opposes materialism to panpsychism. 
Interestingly, however, Karl Popper defines panpsychism as a type of materialism, which most people don't because of something called the no fundamental mentality principle. David Papineau, for example, writes about it, um, which is that um, whatever matter is, one th we can negatively define it by saying it hasn't got any sentience. Any sentience. And by sentience, I mean all forms of um, mentality. Consciousness is a sort of very complex form of that. Mm -hmm. Self-consciousness, mm -hmm. even more complex. Mm -hmm. But I also include subconsciousness. So what's the function of sentience? What's the function of it? As well, in, um, it's something, I mean, would I be on the right track to think about a function of sentience and an, an evolutionary function of sentience as the capacity to discern between what enabled it to continue and what didn't. I mean, it's that very basic capacity to discern between qualities, which means goal and not goal. Yes. In some primitive sense. The power of differentiation. Right. Exactly. For your for based upon interestingly a more fundamental drive, which is your will to live, right? Right. And um Right. Schopenhauer calls it, and also Spinoza believes in Canatus, which is a will to live or will to power, interesting. Um, so, links up with, uh, with uh, Jung a little bit as well, like in, in terms of what he sort of means by the libido. And Bergson with their Elan Vital, that kind of mm. life force. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm yeah. not too educated in it. Maybe it's more of a loose connection than a really tight one. Well, it's certainly related. Schopenhauer, yeah. I mean, it's mostly related, I'd say, to Schopenhauer, who was a vitalist. And he even, you know, in the time, the 18th century criticizes all those people who say, oh, well, vitalism, it's always used today. It's like, oh, well, you know, scientists used to believe that and mm -hmm. now we proved it wrong. Well, not actually, no, you haven't. I mean, it depends what you mean by vitalism, though. If you mean like an extra force on top of matter, I think that's probably not right. But right. If, you, if you mean by, in a more subtle sense, that matter itself has a vitality, yes. then I, I think that's actually correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, now the question, like I was going to interrupt, how, how, how do we come to engage with that vitality through, I mean, our vehicle to engage with that is our consciousness, right? I mean, we, we, we can, what, recognize certain patterns of behavior in ourselves, we can recognize where our attention is drawn to, uh, we, can, we can, whether by placing ourselves in a thought experiment or find ourselves in a particular situation in life, we have an there is something that impels us to live, you know. Uh, so, I mean, so Jung, for example, his idea of the God image as that sort of, uh, as the, on the one hand, the totality of the conscious and unconscious, but on the other hand, the symbol that we engage, engage with that's projected from the unconscious that at once sets the goal to which we orient towards. Right. So it's, 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 it's kind of like that, yeah, it's, 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 it's the beginnings of the capacity to, it's the beginnings of differentiation, but also a, a movement towards, towards it. I don't know. And what causes that original subconscious sort of upsurge? Well, I mean... I mean, is that completely undetermined or is there reasons for it? Like, um, what's he call it? Um, individuation, something like that? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, I, I mean individuation is just that movement out right okay. from from some because Jung of course is talking when he's when he's being very careful just about just about psychology you know and just about the psyche he's not trying to make any metaphysical mm. claims but then you know uh, it will you come, ask all him, comes back to metaphysics well exactly <laughs> you ask him you ask him do you believe in God and he says near the end of his life no I'm 
I don't have to believe, I know. But, you know, what does he mean by God? But so the, the alchemists have an idea of the sort of pre-cosmogonic egg or the, the symbol of the rebis. People can Google that, R-E-B-I-S. It's just a, a symbol to represent the collapsing of opposites and, and the, the idea of the, the prima materia, just that it's an essence or source that is somehow uh, all containing. I seem to want to uh, give it the label static because that's what works in my mind, but I don't know if that's appropriate. But we go from this static perfection of everything all collapsed in one to somehow then a fracturing, and then we have, then, then we begin this, this process. I mean, that somehow the will comes into it, somehow movement comes into it, you know, right. and, and differentiation comes into it. But you can never quite retain get back exactly everything that was there. We can just get sort of pieces of it and engage in consistent processes of transformation, harmonizing around what enables that very process itself to continue and to create ever more elaborately what can never be totally recaptured from the beginning because it's of a different, like it's a different something. It's like a fixed perfection. It's a utopia that's, that's like an, it's, it's like a, it's an image and we're chasing an echo of it. But that, but that's life, and that's okay. Mm. But these ideas for me are. Um, yeah, no, I must admit, yeah. I haven't read Jung enough as much as I should have. Really, just you know, bits, bits and bobs there. Because I suppose in my education, he was always considered a psychologist rather than philosopher. Right. Although, of course, there is an overlap. But um, well, that's the thing. I mean, I'm interested in what, like, where the psycho, where the psycho, where the psychology meets the metaphysics. Like, wh what is it to engage in? I like, mean, fundamentally, I think it it is the same thing because. Well, from my point of view, then, you know, if... The panpsychist yeah, point of panpsychist, view. The psyche, <laughs> panpsyche, yeah. panpsy is uh, fundamental and thus, you know, everything is psychology in a literal sense. Right, no, I... It, and that's metaphysics as well. Yep, no, absolutely. And, uh, but uh, psychology as it's known today, I suppose, is more sort of really inclined towards therapy and right. medicine and whatnot, right. um, which is, of course, of value, but it's not... Right. It's not something I look into. Yeah, well, and it, it also, you know, it's, I, one of my, I mean, I also want to ask you what your interests are in, in, in for this conference and what, what you really look to see, like what are the discussions you look to stoke, what are, like you, what sort of, yeah, what's really driving you to be here. But, but, but before we get to that, there's something that, 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 uh, that, that interests me about this uh, relationship between philosophy and, and therapy and, and, and it's that, there must surely be a hidden, um, uh, yeah, a, a below the surface stabilizing metaphysical framework that, that actually enables society itself to be stable enough so that individuals can be stable in it. And, and our therapy might look to, to aid people to, uh, to, to live their lives better or well or, or heal from trauma and engage in something that's you know, or genuinely authentic, and then have a have a meaningful life and what have you. But 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 often that life is is is, is sort of a many of the other fundamental things are kind of taken for granted. And and part of what interests me about psychedelics is that well, there is a tendency for a sort of metaphysical reshaping in someone's views as well. And so over the long term you know, while we might be moving individuals towards better health, what does that mean for society as, as a greater impact? Like what foundations are, could be altered or not? And so I, I guess part of my interest in being here is, is to really try and, uh, is, 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 to, is to get to grips with uh, what 
practitioners who who are moving the psychedelic movement forward um, ultimately think about those sorts of those sorts of questions and if they can consider if they considered like mm. a, it's not an accurate way to put it but the problem of durations you know you can consider one person's life or or a 12-hour psychedelic experience and that's fine but they're embedded in a in a life that extends far longer than that mm. and and to what extent are you shifting someone's orientation at a at a more extended duration or something like that this is not i could you know anyway i hope you get some of that but <laughs> no i i suppose yeah i mean I mean, my, my talk here on Humphrey Davy is, is really just is simply trying to sort of uh, push the same point, which is that, um, yeah, there is this medicinal benefit and so on, but um, for Davy, the first scientific psychonaut, um, there was also, he was mostly really interested in phenomenological um, accounts. That's mm -hmm. where he got, you know, the greatest writers of the day to write a chapter on their experiences, mm -hmm. uh, like Wordsworth and Coleridge, as I said, Southey. And um, I mean, he personally, these experiences and then ones with the opium and hashish he took as well, I mean, had a profound effect on his belief system. His last book then, Constellations and Travel or The Last Days of a Philosopher, mm -hmm. I mean, the first chapter is called The Vision, which basically was a romantic term for what we today call the trip. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the last chapter is sort of analyzing any truths from that trip and he wrote to his sister and brother, for example, that um, this book is really my final philosophical views, you know, and, um, and are, are to be taken seriously. And um, yeah, his view was that um, there exist all around us beings of which we're generally completely unaware. I mean, really crazy. What most people say is completely crazy, you know. Now, I think with a sort of um, this so-called psychedelic renaissance happening, um, you know, the entryism is obviously uh, medicine, mm -hmm. and also you get funding that mm -hmm. way, so that's where it has to go, obviously. And of course, it's great value of helping people, of course, main thing. But um, if they became more prevalent in society, if people had these experiences more commonly, I mean, as William James says, you know, look, mystical experiences are noetic, by which he means that people actually believe that what they see is real. Typical example, AJS psychedelic-like experience just before he died, which I think I mentioned to you last time. Um, you know, he was a well-known atheist, part of the Humanist Society in Britain. One experience of these two strange red space beings, you know, and so on, yeah. um, made him actually very sympathetic towards the notion of an afterlife. Not God, he points out, you know, yeah. but an afterlife, just one. Yeah. And, and, and he's like, you know, the Richard Dawkins atheist of his age, yeah. you know, AJ Eyre. So imagine if... And as Ben Sessa was just saying, more people are taking psychedelics now than in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where he got those figures, but that's what he said. I'm not yeah. corroborating that, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, if these noetic... Okay, uh, two Please. conditions, right? Please. If William James is right, that mystical experiences, which we can equate with psychedelic experiences, I think that's fair, as he himself does. Yes. Um, if they contain a noetic element, in other words, you believe that what you see is at least partly something real, not yes. just hallucination. Yes, but and, really real. Yeah, well, you know, there are, I think there are different degrees. I mean, right. obviously there are hallucinations, you know, but yes. Um, yes. that could be, a, you know, obviously it's sort of, as you change the channel, you'll get a bit of both worlds, as it were. Um, 
yeah, so on the condition that more people are taking psychedelics and on the condition that they are noetic, generally speaking, you're going to get a worldview change, you know? Yes. Now, I don't want to be too utopian about that because, um, you know, from experience from the 60s, people thought, yeah, no, yeah, give everyone LSD and there'll be peace in the world. Didn't happen. Then again, not everyone could, took LSD. Yeah. <laughs> and also, of course, we shouldn't forget the right-wing um, component of, or the dark component of um, psychedelic drug use as well, you know? Absolutely. So it, Absolutely. It, it, I don't think it necessarily, I don't, I'm not convinced by these studies that show that psychedelics make you um, more peaceful and, and so on. I, th I think it's rather that if you're more peaceful, you're more likely to take them generally. Interesting. But I'm not sure about that. More studies need to be done. But anyway, I think ultimately, whatever political persuasion you're at, um, certainly it will open up people's minds to different forms of consciousness, which then would make them more sympathetic to things like panpsychism. I mean, Hartshorn, a great Whiteheadian philosopher said, one of the reasons that people um, don't buy panpsychism is because they simply cannot imagine what it would be like to be, you know, a particle or something like that. Yes. But if you have experienced all these, you know, completely non-prosaic, um, you know, experiences, then I think um, you, you can sort of, well, yeah, at least you can begin to imagine it. Yes. Well, and and of course, William James recognizes four marks of the mystical. The most, the two most important, as far as I'm concerned, are the noetic quality, but also the ineffability. Mm. So not only are people thinking it's real, they can't fucking yeah. chat about it. They don't know what to say about it, can't communicate it. You know, so, just a footnote to that, Humphrey Davy speaks about the ineffability of nitroxide states already in 1800, you know. Now, William James didn't claim originality for that, but, you know, you see it there. Nitrous oxide is very, very interesting. I, I, I do think it's... Um, especially with cannabis, uh, uh, and people often use it with other psychedelics as well, and, but... Um, I mean, you, you know, I mean, Humphrey Davy tried it shockingly. I mean, we take it today in, you know, maybe like a um, two-pint uh, balloon, something like that. Yeah. But, I mean, he well, it took it in small forms to start with, but then he got into this huge box, looked like Dr. Hutardis, and took um, 80 quarts, which is about 90 liters of it, oh, in over 75 <laughs> minutes... And then he stepped out and took 20 uh, more quarts of pure nitrous oxide in a silk bag balloon. And, um, and then that's where his famous, you know, expression, you know, um, all his thoughts, you know, became sort of idealist through that, you know. Also had a lot of visions and whatnot. So, yes. uh, so yeah, it's, it's life-changing. Like I say, with Humphrey Davy, he was basically a mystic, you know. Yes. Certainly a visionary. Yes. As well as a great chemist. Yes, well, Absolutely. And a great Penzance man. Yeah, well, that's right. That's, My local town. I kind of do get the feeling you might be a little bit biased towards Humphrey <laughs> yeah. Davy based on the Penzance thing. Probably Penzance won't be happy about what I'm going to say about him, but uh, yeah. the truth needs to be known. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's very interesting. So I'm trying to think here. We've, we've covered quite a bit. So there, is, there's one, there was one question I was going to ask before, and I may as well just bloody ask it. So... So when Whitehead says uh, creativity is a higher principle than God, is yeah, that what you said? That's right, because God himself is an actual occasion. Right, and is, is that the, the, the total of all currently fixable actual occasions at a given moment? I know that's not technically the right way to speak because they can't be fixed, but no. does God refer to the sum total of actual occasions, but not... Um, well, it's complicated. So yeah. there's, first of all, there's two main... Um, aspects of God. There's what he calls um, the primordial nature of God and the consequent nature of the God. The consequent nature of God is God as 
as you say, like experiencing himself through all of us, all of us beings, including plants, and whatnot. Yes, yeah, all the actual entities. Yeah. So, so he, um, so that's one form of him. But yeah. also, there's primordial nature of God, which is the eternal aspect, where the eternal objects exist, which are basically universals that exist in timeless realm, such as Pythagoras' theorem, are things they like that. Essentially, they are forms, but it doesn't use that word because of the baggage that it contains. But but they are what basically they're what Plato calls forms, what Russell calls universes, what Santayana calls essences. Yes. What Frege calls um, the third realm. Right. More or less the same thing. So there's it's a level of existence, and this is actually like this is why some people call Spinoza panentheist rather than pantheist, because pantheism is that nature is God, right. and by nature you mean occurring in duration through time. But there's, there's the eternal aspect of God as well, which doesn't occur through time. It doesn't mean um, eternity, like um, infinite duration. It means something that is actually outside of time, um, which is hard to kind of conceptualize. But, you know, the great thinkers, a lot of the great thinkers from Plato onwards, actually, you know, from Pythagoras onwards, um, have believed in this form of existence. Most people say, well, no, you know, that, that's not existence. That's just a concept. But, but concepts are only there incursions or ing ingressions, as Whitehead says, into duration, you know? They, they, um, That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. I would love you to unpack the ingression into duration there. I'll give you an example from uh, Karl Popper, actually, who also okay. believes, he calls it World 3. Well, it's, it's part of World 3 for Popper. World 3. Yeah, so for Popper, World 1 is matter, World 2 yep. is mind, World 3 is then this eternal aspect, but it's a little bit more than that as culture as well. But I'll keep it simple. So Karl Popper gave, gives an example related to Russell and Frege, funnily enough. Um, so Frege um, attempted to write these, this, this logical theorem on the uh, logical foundations of uh, mathematics. And um, it, was, it, it existed then in manuscript form before it was published for a few years. Uh, Russell found a fatal flaw in it, which Frege admitted to. Ostensibly, so he was really happy about that, but I don't mm. think he really was. Mm. But anyway, Popper's point is this. In Frege's theorem, theory, not theorem, theorem, um, there was an error, right? A logical error. It existed, but how did that exist? You can't say it existed physically. It wasn't the paper or ink. Um, you can't say it existed as a concept either, because no one was aware of it. Um, and also, because it, no one had it as a concept, there would be no neural correlative either in the brain. So it wouldn't exist physically that way either. But nonetheless, it is right to say it existed. There was a flaw in that theorem before anyone was ever aware of the fact. Where, what, what, what's the ontological status of this existence, Popper asks. Well, that's his world three, or part of his world three. That is what really, that's an example of what um, Whitehead calls eternal ideas, and they exist in the pri what he calls a primordial, primordial nature of God. Okay, so, so you have these forms, these eternal ideas, and what any 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 bastardization of them is also contained in there as well like because this is yeah. an error right so it, so yeah. so there's every possible error yeah. it's infinite yeah. yeah and it's not only mathematical not only number not all numbers for example and all concepts it's also um sensibilia like red or uh, um feelings you know um so red exists whether anyone thinks about it or not mm-hmm you know, before humans were there, before any organism with eyes was there, red existed in a, in a, or what Russell says, that 
didn't exist. It, and Russell uses the example of whiteness instead of redness, but nonetheless, it subsisted. So the interesting um, concept there is that um, it's basically it's a fundamental ontology. What do we mean by exists? You know, what do we mean by the, it exists? Usually people just mean solidity. You know? yes. Some other people think mentality as well. Yes. But this is, the third, this is why Frege calls it, although he limits it to mathematical objects, but nonetheless he calls it the third okay. realm, Dritarache. Does this third realm, and I'll just reset that, Someone was phoning me. Um, I just want to check it wasn't very important. Video call from Lindsay. So, okay, I have a question then about these, uh, this, these, uh, these, uh, these forms, primordial. What's Part the of the primordial nature of God, as as um, Whitehead calls it, but this God, of course, is no, in, is not um, you know uh, a, a Christian God at all, really. Right, right. So, so the the primordial nature of God, and what's the other consequent nature? Consequent. The nature. consequent. So, does the does the consequent nature of God is it is can we understand it as filtered through in some sense the primordial nature of God, like any possible shape those things could take yeah. or essence. Yeah, no, that's right. And actually, Whitehead calls these eternal objects sometimes simply possibilities. Right. Possibilities. You, you know, just think about this linguistically. If you say possibilities exist, which no one has ever thought of, mm. um, well, well right. they exist then. Of course. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's more than that simple wordplay. I mean, you know, and also, like I say, there's a massive legacy of it through the scholastics. And, um, and through the Greeks. And, um, and interestingly, a lot of mathematicians and logicians um, believe in this third realm because it makes sense of their, much more sense of their theories. A great example of which is um, Einstein's best friend, Kurt Gödel, you know, came up with the two incompleteness theorems. I mean, he was a complete Platonist in that sense. He said not only did um, the realization of this third realm, this Frege's word, this, I'll use that word enough for all of them, but not only did the realization that this third realm is absolutely real help inform my theorems, incompleteness theorems, which were, you know, Google that if you've never heard of it, but very mm. influential um, about the fact that you can never really um, self-justify logic um, and maths. But um, not, not only did it influence that, but also they, the theorems themselves um, contribute to the substantiation of that Platonism. And um, Roger Penrose, whom I mentioned, he's also a Platonist. He even has diagrams of his three worlds. And so, I mean, most people haven't even heard of this stuff, but it is fundamentally a footnote to Plato, you know, Whitehead's most famous expression. And I, I personally, I mean, I, I just completely dismissed it for most of my mm. life since I read about it when I was 18 or so. Mm. I thinking, well, this is just an old kind of quasi-religious, mystical, obvious error. Mm. But then when you actually do look into it, I mean, a great introduction to it is Russell, Bertrand Russell. When you really look into it, you know, it actually, it is quite compelling.